This is episode 225 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Control and Compound Financial. They teach real estate investors how to multiply their wealth using infinite banking strategies. For a complimentary wealth coaching session or to learn more, visit www.controlandcompound.com forward slash Andrew Hines. Welcome back to the show. Today I have Myron Chanthira Kumar, and I'm thinking I'm saying that right. Uh, he came on the show and uh, Myron's an interesting guy. He's a commercial appraiser. I've never had a commercial appraiser on this show, so we talked a lot about valuing buildings, how it works, how he's able to use his career as a commercial appraiser to his benefit. So he's able to look at deals and he's seen a lot of them. He's seen a lot of comparables. He's worked in a lot of different markets. He knows where things are working uh, and where they're not working as well. Uh, and his knowledge led him to Windsor and then Sudbury, where he now focuses the majority of his time. So we talked about how he's doing that at a distance. Uh, very intelligent guy. And he shared a lot of wisdom, a lot of gold nuggets on this episode. It was actually a lot of fun to record. So I think you'll enjoy it as well. A couple of things I just want to remind you of. Uh, we do meet monthly at the GTA West REI meetup. Myron is one of the guys that I've seen at the last couple. And uh, there's a lot of other very uh, accomplished investors that come out to these things. And um, I really enjoy networking with them. And if you're an investor and you'd like to uh, meet and greet and, and have some conversations, I encourage you to follow the link in the show notes of this episode and make sure you join our private group so that you can be notified the next time we have an event. Uh, beyond that, if you're new to real estate investing and some of the things that we talk about on the show aren't as nuts and bolts as you like, I'd highly recommend heading back to episodes one through, say, 15, uh, where we really focused. I did screen shares. I showed spreadsheets. I um, I really tried to teach those episodes, uh, even though I had guests. Uh, I tried to teach them as if uh, people had no concept of real estate investing. They'd never done it. So uh, that was the intent of that. So if you'd like, if you feel that refresher would be helpful helpful for you head on back to the first episodes and then make your way back to uh to this one and uh i think you get a lot more out of it uh so just before we jump in if you could kindly share this episode with somebody that you think would benefit from it um i want to keep this podcast growing helping it to continue to grow is what helps me to continue to do this uh bringing on sponsors allowing for me to keep the production quality high um, as you can likely imagine this is a huge time commitment to do this show uh and a huge financial commitment so uh, um, I would I would really, really appreciate it if you could uh, help get the word out there and help it continue to grow as you've been doing so far. I, I really do appreciate it. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Myron. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I've got Myron Chanthira Kumar. I think I said it right. You did. You did. I don't know how I did that. <laughs> it's a very memorable last name. But uh, anyways, yeah. So uh, thanks for coming down. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, Myron, I know we, I don't know, we've met a handful of times. Uh, I actually don't know your full story. I know you're a real estate appraiser, uh, commercial real estate appraiser. That's correct. So that's interesting. I don't think we've had that on the podcast before. So we'll dig into that a little bit. Yeah, of course. But, um, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself as an investor and what you're up to. Yeah, for sure. So I started investing um, by accident in 2019, where I decided to purchase my first property. Uh, before that, we're trying to get into a pre-construction, just a typical, you know, first purchase. Everyone kind of goes there. But that 10-day cooling period, 
I kind of ran the numbers. So this condominium was in Bonn uh, by the yeah. transit station that they were built, building at that time. And it was a two bedroom, two bath condominium for 565,000. So this was in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I put in the numbers, didn't really make sense. And it was a big commitment for those couple of years. So I literally just took a map of Ontario and um, the bank said I was qualified up to 300,000. I was 24 at that time, just out of university and Windsor made sense. And I went to a couple of open houses, never been to Windsor before. And there was huge lineups in every home where it would be listed at one hundred, sorry, $199,000 and sold for plus 300,000. So I kind of figured that's was just a way to mm-hmm. get a, gen- a big uh, pool of buyers coming in and putting offers. So I just went to a property that was listed at asking price at two ninety nine, and I was able to negotiate it for two fifty seven, and that's when I realized what cash flow was because I just rented it at eighteen hundred dollars, and I was making about eight hundred bucks a month after mortgage, hmm. and my five year fix was two point seven four. Okay, I wished even then it was cheap, but looking back. Um, at that in the moment, I thought it was expensive, but looking yeah, back, compared to some of the stuff, right? Yeah, you saw people yeah. getting two two five, felt yeah. like you were missing out. And that was that was pre pandemic uh, rates. So once I got that, tenant didn't pay rent, so I had to figure out how to work that situation out. Pandemic hit. There was restrictions by government in terms of visiting your properties. Um, even if you owned it, you couldn't really go inside with the tenants. And long story short, was able to get them get the tenant out. But during the pandemic. There was a lot of online webinars. I wanted to solely base my um, real estate portfolio on no JV partners. Similar to the the Kellen James, I was kind of following him on social media. And I'm like, I got to be able to do this. So learn creative financing, better take back mortgages, did all that. So since 2020, uh, I purchased about 40 units, um, around 12 properties with uh, no JV partners. Really? Okay. Yeah. What kind of base of capital were you working off of to make that happen? Yes. So uh, my first bird project, I was in Windsor and I came across an off-market duplex for $140,000. And it was two duplexes. I was trying to get both, but I was only able to get one. Mm -hmm. And I needed the 20% for that $140,000 duplex. So that was $28,000. And I didn't even have that at that time. So what I decided to do was I run the numbers and I'm like, I can probably buy this in all cash. Now, I've never done this before, but I looked at the value on the purchase as fully renovated and it was around the 350,000 mark. So it was like 80% of that. I can still be able to pull majority of my capital out because the as this value was 250. So 80% of mm-hmm. 250 was $200,000. So I can literally buy this in the worst case scenario, buy this in private money and take it to an A lender and refinance it. My new mortgage will be greater than my purchase price. So that was okay. my mentality at that time. So, and what was the asking price on the? Uh, 140. You got it for 140 as is price was actually two, 250? No, the as is value of which you sell on the market. Yeah. So why, uh, why are you getting it for 140 then? So my agent, who is the listing agent that I bought the first property, yeah. I gave him a lot of referrals and during that summer of 2020, I told him, hey, like, I'm ready to get into this model. If you have anything that requires a lot of work, like, give it to me. And it was the same seller. And this property was full with, you know, tenants that were doing drugs, um, became a hoarder house. So I walked in, it was uh, up and down duplex. So mm-hmm. the seller didn't really want to put it on the market and kind of deal with it. So it was 
two duplexes. The other one, I was able to get it for 286, but the seller backed out last minute. They wanted to live in it. And the other one, um, it was whatever offer I was willing to give. So there was no asking price. Mm-hmm. I came in at 120, but they were they wanted 150, so I came in at 140. And I paid, so I raised $150,000. So that summer, I went to my colleagues, my network, yeah. and I gave them the idea, hey, if I do come up with, come up with an opportunity, I'd be willing to you know, raise money with the right offer. And I did not want to give up equity. It was so it was just debt payment. Debt. Yeah, just and promissory that, notes. Yeah, so promissory note, 150000 covered my purchase price and the cash for keys of 5000 and my closing cost. All right, so you did the cash for keys and then you went back to an A-lander and... Uh, no, so what I did was I had a $50,000 student line of credit. I used that for renovation. Plus I borrowed a buddy of mine $50,000. So with the one fifty and the private money that I borrowed was a 10% interest only payment. So my all-in capital that I borrowed was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So with mm-hmm. the interest and holding costs was just under two sixty. The property was appraised six months later for three hundred and eighty-nine thousand. So holy moly! I took it to an A lender. My new mortgage was three eleven. Paid yeah. off the two sixty, and I made fifty thousand dollars in extra yeah. capital without using my own money. Call that the perfect burr. Yeah, yeah. right. I wish you can get that now, but it's getting quite difficult. I feel like he still can, but. I, I don't know. Like, I've been generally pretty big on go where the deals make sense. I like what yeah. you did. You went to Windsor, deals made sense there. Yeah. So is Ontario sort of not really making sense to you anymore? I think there are still opportunities in secondary and tertiary markets for just quick multifamily burrs, like like one to four, sorry, two to four units. Um, after that property in Windsor, I went to Sudbury because I couldn't get mm-hmm. qualified or not even be able to make a reasonable offer on property because Windsor mm-hmm. at that time, which I thought it was already at its peak, wasn't really at its peak. Yeah. And I think everyone thought in Ontario, all the markets were at its peak. So I took another, the map and I was like, Sudbury seemed like the next reasonable yeah. city that hasn't been touched. And ever since then, all my properties have been in Sudbury. So as of right now, I have 10 or 11 properties in Sudbury. And all Maltese? All Maltese. Okay, what's the average size of the Maltese? Um, right now, probably on average three to four units. I have a 111 unit. Okay. That is a fourplex, fiveplex, and a duplex on one lot. So oh, nice. under one mortgage. Uh, the beauty of that is when I'm renting it out, I'm not renting it as an 11 unit building. I'm yeah. renting it as a duplex or a fourplex or a fiveplex. So the rents I'm able to achieve are higher. So I bought that last year for 1.3 million and just got appraised for just under 2.1. Wow, prices in Sudbury are that high now? Yeah, it is. So I guess since I'm on the commercial valuation side of my career, like I do a lot of appraisals for clients. So I get to, I have an idea in terms of, hey, if I'm using this cap rate for a client, I can kind of underwrite yeah. it to see what my projections would be. That right there is such an asset. Like just anyone listening to this, just think about that. If you're constantly <laughs> looking at and appraising and like you're seeing comps like, you know what stuff's trading at in that market based yeah. on like basically insider info. Basically. Um, we, we don't have access to that same information no. that you have through your, your subscription service, right? It's depending on the real estate brokerage you're with, it's yeah. a lot of money. So a lot of the yeah. institutional brokerages will fund the um, subscription. They'll take a portion of your commission to fund that on your admin. Yeah. But um, it is a competitive advantage over a, just a normal investor. Do you have to disclose that you're a real estate appraiser when you buy stuff? 
No, because I, I don't have a, my real estate license. No, so. okay. I just wondered if yeah. it was a similar requirement. And no, so I kind of appraise my own buildings. So what I do is that I kind of appraise it myself using the direct capitalization method. Yeah. And when I go approach that appraiser, I'm like, hey, this is how I Hey, I've already <laughs> done the whole thing for you. So no pressure. This is, <laughs> let me know if this is what this, if this is the operating expenses or income ratio that you're going to be using. And I'll get an, a good idea if that's the appraiser I want to use. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, due to conflict of interest, my firm is not able to do that. Well, you, you mean your own firm? Yeah. Can't. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They, <laughs> those pesky conflicts of interest. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just such valuable information. So, I mean, especially on the Burr side, the refi side, when you see like other investors, you know, what they're able to do. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you know what you're able to buy for. So then all of a sudden now... It just yeah. gives you that confidence to go ahead and pull the trigger and buy them. Yeah, like I could put offers on like within five minutes, like I can put an offer on a multifamily building under conditions. So at least I have some leeway to do further due diligence. But in terms yeah. of what the ARV would be right now, the tricky part is how financing works with the rate hikes. If you're mm -hmm. going CMHC um, or you're going conventional on the refinance, what your LTV would be. Because getting a value is one thing, but getting your capital out is a whole nother ballgame. Yeah, because it's all about what the bank will support yeah. from a debt coverage ratio. For sure. Higher interest rates means it's that much harder. Yeah. Right. Sorry, I'm just like almost yawning. <laughs> My son wakes up at 5.30 every morning. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, right. laughs> <laughs> if not earlier. Anyways. Um Okay, so I mean, that's a super, super uh, interesting approach that you're able to take with that. Um, Sudbury's far. How are you managing with the distance? So I grew up in Vaughan. Um, so right now, my parents are in Woodbridge. I kind of, I just moved into downtown Toronto last year. But when I started investing in Sudbury, it's only about three and a half hour drive to Sudbury from Vaughan, mm -hmm. which is almost the same distance to Windsor. Yeah. Uh, so in the beginning, when I was scaling, I was literally going to Sudbury once a month, twice a month, meeting tenants. I was doing mm -hmm. all the leasing. It was not sustainable. But once I reached the 17 unit to 20 unit mark and I had another 11 units coming under contract, I just reached out to my network, posted on Kijiji for someone who's willing to manage my real estate portfolio in Sudbury. I did not want to outsource property management. I feel like the quality of the services kind of deteriorate. Yeah, yeah. Once you start outsourcing, management. I agree. Insource, so you you more just hired an individual that would yeah. that would run around for you. So they take care of leasing. There's no leasing costs; it's just on an hourly rate, so twenty bucks an hour. So you just pay this guy twenty bucks an hour to go meet with people, everything. Like. Yeah. So she okay. takes care of like manages the renovation because contractors will renovate all the property yeah. depending so on what boots it is. on the ground basically yeah. is what what she does. Yeah, and all maintenance. So I have a. a third-party property management software called Release. And that is where tenants can put in all their repairs and maintenance requests. And she will get a notification on the app. I have the landlord app, so I don't really get the details. I just see what my rental income is mm -hmm. on every property. And she gets all the maintenance requests. All the tenants can pay through the app. So I try systemizing it to yeah. the best of my ability. Interesting. Okay, so somebody else is in a market like far from where they invest. Um, What's the easiest way for them to find their boots on the ground, their insourced boots on the ground? Is it is it your network or what if you don't have a network that has connections there? I think the best way for me, when I went to Sudbury, nobody on social media that I was following or I heard of was investing in Sudbury from the GTA or publicizing it. So well, Austin, though, right? Austin went after I did. Oh, OK. I thought he so was. a couple of months afterwards. Okay. And Austin started promoting it on his social media. And then I was like, no way, because I was trying to keep it as discreet as possible yeah. until I get a couple of properties under my belt. 
but uh, now like a lot of investors from Toronto. Oh, are that's crazy. Up well, like Robbie Clark and, and Dylan yeah, Suter. Yeah, so they have a huge portfolio out there. Um, his and his entire team, like Dylan Suter and all those guys. So mm-hmm. they they're quite well known up in Sudbury and all the northern tertiary markets like Sault Ste. Marie and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but in regards to building a team for me when I went up, I just went to a property management company and a lot of them have their own contracting team. Mm-hmm. So they were they did my first unit, but through that I met like four or five contractors because I met a plumber, I met a, mm-hmm. a handyman, and through those I reached out to their network. Yeah, and it takes time. So it's just meeting people and That's asking it. questions. Yeah, I mean at the end of the day, it's just, sometimes it is just time, as you've said. Yeah. And I just stayed over in Sudbury at a hotel, um, spent a couple of nights there, yeah. did what I had to do, drive around, and uh, yeah, it was. Now looking back, it didn't seem like a grind, but that's the thing. Like a lot of investors always come to me and be like, hey, like, how is that even possible? Like, that's so much energy for you to go back and forth. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, if you think the work is a grind, it's going to be a grind. But if you just put your mind to it and you look at what the potential would be, it just it's just more of a passion. It doesn't seem like that. I used to enjoy it. I sleeping in the house, not showering more than like twice in a week. Uh, I think you stayed over at your <laughs> yeah. Property, I slept, right? slept in the properties when there was not even vapor barrier. Yeah. Uh, you know, like waking up with morning dew on my face. <laughs> I didn't even mind it. I'm like, because this to me it was like things were finally changing for me because I never yeah. really hit my stride with real estate and never really had any significant success. And this was the boldest move I had made to date. Right. I just liked it. I, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I've really, really felt willing to put in the work and yeah. I didn't even mind it. And Which I think, I think that's similar for you, what you're describing. People just see the end result yeah. and not all the work that went behind. But sometimes we get so caught up in acquisition. Like I just got a property under contract yesterday and I just got it and I'm not even excited anymore. It's just more of like, all right, just send it to the lawyer. And well, it, it eventually out. becomes tedious yeah. and monotonous, <laughs> uh, which I, I can relate to as well. Like you know the um, the minutiae i guess on, yeah. on a daily basis you know the people i have to pay and it's, it's like it never goes away <laughs> like yeah. you got this and then 100 more emails the next day um you know For that sure. stuff happens now granted like i have a lot of people helping me out yeah. but it's just as you grow like it, you're constantly having to find new things to delegate right right yeah and yeah. I, I mean, as you're growing your portfolio you're probably going to get more and more things come up and have to deal with I think for me, it's more of getting a full-time staff or part-time yeah. staff kind of doing a lot of the, you know, financing, the documentation process. Right now, I still have to do it. I do have a VA, but it's different having someone in a different country where someone on the ground, boots on the ground, where mm-hmm. they can do the underwriting for properties. They can do all the um, mm-hmm. negotiations. Someone, so you that, want to send somebody out to actually look at them, run yeah. through everything. So the current lady you have working for you, you don't think she could do that stuff? So right now, when I get a property under contract, uh, or like a deal on MLS, like I'll just get it under contract. She'll go do their due diligence with my contractors. I'll get the video, so it's a bit more virtual. And once I feel like the numbers are quite good, I get the appraisal back, everything is solid, then mm-hmm. I will make the trip out to Sudbury. So right now, um, I don't really go unless I have a lot of clients who are who have to appraise their property. So a lot of my mm-hmm. clients, they do invest in Northern Ontario. So like in North Bay and Sudbury. So when I do the drive up to appraise my properties, uh, client's properties, then I'll take a couple of hours out of the day to go visit mine and see what those projects are. So that's the the beauty of what I do. I get to travel across mm-hmm. Ontario. So I was just near Montreal on Friday. So I went to Cornwall, Hawkesbury, and a few other cities along the way. And I just get to yeah. go to cities that I, I would never really take the time out of my own day to go visit. And I'll just... Oh, it's such valuable experience. Yeah, a lot of people would ask me early on when I was doing the podcast, like, should I become a realtor? 
appraiser. I'm like, you know what? You get into any of these professions that are that real estate related or adjacent or actually directly involved, like you're just going to learn and yeah. you're going to use those uh, those skills. Uh, I was just talking to a guy who's an urban planner and he just bought a, a property yeah. with uh, with my brother in law and. Uh, it's it's just crazy like the confidence he had because he's an urban planner like he yeah. oh i know what, and it, it helps what the i'm sure they probably look at the gentrification what the potential of it long, yeah in terms of the long long run i think urban planning uh being a commercial appraiser maybe other profession within the real estate community they require the most education they do compared to getting a mortgage license yeah like you agent. need an actual university degree to be a commercial appraiser right yes yeah, so you got to get a degree um and then you got to um, go to the GBC, University of British Columbia, which is online, and they have an affiliated program with the Appraisal Institute of Canada. Mm -hmm. So you're doing courses at the university yeah. and you got to do credits with the Institute of Canada. So it can take about two to four years. So right now for myself, I'm still an AIC candidate, which means that I have the right to practice, but uh, I'm not an official commercial appraiser because during the pandemic, I thought I was going to leave my job by the end of the year at the rate I was growing. And I'm like, you know what, let me build something out of this with the portfolio that I was doing. And once the pandemic closed off and I was going to a lot of these local meetups, rarely you ever walk into a room and meet another appraiser. Like I told someone, hey, I'm a, I'm a commercial appraiser. You get like five people around you, right? Yeah. Because, so there was so much value that I was able to add in a room. And I'm like, I can make a business out of this because being a, for me, I am commission-based. So it's all about yeah. the revenue you bring in. So it's not like I'm working nine to five. I get to do yeah. whatever I want, but as long as I bring in content revenue and I have my team working on the reports. So do you, uh, so you have to appraise them yourself though? So I do the valuation. Yeah. Um, I do the client, the client meeting, the business development, kind of looking at the property. But a lot of the appraisal report, when you're looking at the economic overviews, a lot of the so, property details, okay. you can get, we have our own team that works, that, that supports that. us. So we've trained them well how to do that, like pulling the geo warehouse, the MPAC, um, there's CoStar data, real net mm -hmm. data. I look at the comps. So, but here's the thing, once you have a lot of data within a city and you're, and you're doing a couple of multifamily buildings, it's mm -hmm. pretty much the same comps, right? Yeah. Because there's only so much commercial transactions that happen, especially with office, retail, industrial. Yeah. Um, so once you have a good database, it's all just replicating that information, yeah. ensuring that the data is as, concrete as possible so you can continue to replicate it and make a machine out of it so you're bringing in as much revenue so we're trying to bring in about mm -hmm. seventy-five thousand to a hundred thousand a month in revenue uh the most i bought a month is probably a hundred thousand one hundred and five you brought in a hundred thousand in one appraisal month. revenue so but to get that much yeah. in one month is more portfolio um appraisals where you're getting a lot of clients who have multiple properties yeah. in ontario yeah, and uh, for those who like haven't bought commercial yet, it's much much bigger appraiser appraisal, much more expensive. Yeah, um, a lot more detail for sure. And a lot you can learn from those reports. So yeah, they're worth uh, worth reading through. I think everyone just gets to the value and they're like, all right. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, you do. It's it, there's a lot of answers in those. It's yeah. uh, it's really cool to actually take a look through them. Yeah, you know all the information compiled in one spot. So talk me through like your process. Just to, you know help people understand what goes into to one of these reports and how because it does seem quite subjective sometimes to come up with values. Obviously, different appraisers are going to disagree on mm -hmm. what something's worth. I mean, how are you putting it together? I know you're going to say comps. Uh, what special data do you have access to that allows you to you know to really have confidence in the values you're coming up with? So depending on the firm you're with, a lot of the institutional firms. Um, have a technology team focused on systemizing a lot of the valuation. 
So for myself, like I'm part of a global value, global real estate brokerage firm. So we're based okay. out of the US and they put a lot of investment into um, AI, right? How to, because a lot of our institutional clients, especially the, the REITs, they want to be able to get a value as soon as possible. And that's where the market is going, where, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, like you would have to wait a month to get an appraisal report, mm -hmm. especially on the commercial side. Whereas right now I can give you a value depending on the fee you're willing to pay within like two days to five days, right? Because we, they focus so much on the technology that and once we put in the data into our system, mm -hmm. for instance, in multifamily, it's really your income and expenses. Yeah. And depending on what you're trying to do with the building. So a lot of our clients are basically burning that building. Yeah. So depending on the lender, you may need two values. So a hypothetical market value as renovated and stabilized yeah. and an as is value. So the hypothetical is just basically for the lender to know there is enough juice in, yeah. the, in the deal or for the actual client just to know that they're a bit more comfortable with the deal that they're going to be pursuing and investing a lot of capital. So for us, we look at both. So the client will provide their performa. Yeah. And in terms of what they're projecting. To do, do you use the, uh, the client's uh, assumptions for expenses or you have your own? Uh... So property taxes, insurance are, um, they're pretty, they're more fixed. So if the property taxes are amount, like yeah. we're going to use that insurance. That we kind of look at what the client has. There's a, a good range that we. Like that an allowable standard. range that you'll work with. Yeah. yeah. So we just had a client that had a, a multifamily building and his annual property insurance was less than $1,000 a year for like an eight unit building. That doesn't make sense. Obviously. But that's with the insurance with a TD and TD is pretty cheap when it comes to property insurance. Huh. And, uh, but for us, if we were to use that client's property insurance, well, then the cap rates of the comps are yeah. going to be adjusted. It's going to skew your value. Yeah. yeah. So we just put in the industry standards yeah. for what we see. And then repairs and maintenance are typically 750 a unit utility, depending on if it's all inclusive. So or do plus. you kind of stick with what the CMHC guidelines are, like what they use for their programs? We try to be as consistent as possible, but every lender will have their own underwriting. Sure, the lenders do, but they, if they're using CMHC, they're all yeah. going to use CMHC's guidelines yeah. too, right? So yeah. we... The hardest part for us is we have to use consistent operating expenses because if not all clients will be using CMHC. Yeah. So we don't want our operating expenses to be based on what lender you're using. Yeah. Because the NOI does not take. So you just stay consistent. Yeah. And and do you have some degree of certainty that what you're doing is what other appraisers are doing to keep your cap rates consistent? So a lot of appraisers don't have some additional operating expenses that mm -hmm. they use. So payroll and benefits typically is about 500 bucks a unit mm -hmm. for us, for the way I look at it, a building, if you're, if you have a 10 unit building, a payroll and benefits, is a huge uh, operating expense to add for a very small multi. Yeah. You don't necessarily building. use that for a small building. Yeah. yeah. Maybe more than 20 units, 30 units, depending on where it's located mm -hmm. in, the, in the building. But some appraisers may use that for a five unit building. So I had an appraiser who appraised my five unit building and he used payroll and benefits at about 500 bucks a unit. And that's a huge amount of money. Yeah, us. it affects your, your right? numbers. Yeah. So it's important to have that conversation to see what the appraiser will use. So depending on the lender, they may add that payroll and benefits when they do their own underwriting. Yeah. But a lot of lenders, they don't really use the NOI that we come up with. They just want to make sure the value is there and they kind of come up with their yeah. own um NOI and they desk service. Right. Well, that's been my experience with commercial appraisers. You know, they don't really so much care what I have to say. My expenses are <laughs> like they're coming up with their own, um, you know, so it's really more like what is the revenue and how is it derived and yeah. and all that stuff. What do you find 
uh, clients that you work with. And I think this is a special opportunity because you're, you know, you come out to the meetups, like you're, you know, you're very integrated with uh, the investor community. Uh, what do you find you're teaching people a lot? Like what, what's a big teaching point that, you know, people are like, aha, I didn't know that. I think it's cap rates. Yeah. People always ask me, hey, Myron, what is the cap rate of like London or Kitchener Waterloo? And for me, it really comes down to what your NOI is, right? Because a cap rate, I can give you a, a cap rate between a 2% spectrum from like 3 to 5%, but that's a huge mm -hmm. um, difference huge in value. So for me, it's kind of sh under showing them that, hey, your cap rate is based on the net operating income of the building. Because typically, the lower your NOI, the lower your cap rate, the higher their NOI, the higher the cap rate. Because properties typically are supposed to transact um, that the less room to add value to your building, the higher the cap rate due to the the limited potential of value. Yeah, so so you're saying that that if there's more opportunity to add value, it's going to trade at a lower cap rate. A lower cap rate. Yeah, and there are deals where individuals are able to get a um, yeah. vacant unit on possession. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I did my 11 units, I bought it at a low 5% cap, but I got a couple of units vacant prior to closing. And that was, so the vacancies were included in the cap rate. So the cap rate yes. basically had some vacancy, which really skews it. Yeah. And right or do, or do you run the numbers based on full occupancy at market rent and then you just have a higher vacancy rate like how how would most so appraisers we look at the contract and then yeah. we take at the time of the inspection yeah. we look at how many vacant units there are yeah but let's say on paper or on the agreement of purchase and sale if this is under contract they're in agreed upon um vacancy that will be available at the time of closing mm -hmm. then we will take that into consideration and then we'll add an assumption in our mm -hmm. report saying that the value is based on the renting these units yeah. being vacant yeah. and then we just so that we're protected from a value side and the lender know that hey, yeah and i feel like the lenders even will take a similar approach like they yeah. know you're going to rent the the stuff sure. out they're going to apply their vacancy rate that they feel comfortable with yeah and probably treat it as occupied but i had an interesting experience when i did the 11 unit i had ideally the more vacant units you have on closing the better is for the lender better for you know. worse for the bank yes <laughs> For, so I assume that it would be better for the lender too because they're getting a higher income to service a debt that they've secured. Well, after you after yeah. you turn them over. But I, I feel like your big five banks don't like that. Generally no. speaking, credit unions, I think, have way more vision for that. So the credit union that I did, they put a, a $65,000 mortgage holdback because I had five vacant units on closing. So they didn't like it either. So I had to put $65,000 of my own money yeah. for a down payment and then... And the weird part is that they don't even ask if you actually renovate it and rent it. They just need five lease agreements to be like, hey, like you rented these out. <laughs> so for me, it was like really redundant because that money I could have just used for the actual renovation. So it kind of delayed the process in terms of the capital I was willing to invest in it and I had to shift my money around. So for me, in my investment journey, it kind of helps out because from the appraisal side of things, I can kind of add that benefit to the client to be like, hey, um, in addition to me valuing the property, just keep an eye out from the financing side. This may or may not happen. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that you're you're obviously going to be very helpful for people who, um, you know, are investors like minded. Like you have such a an advantage over an appraiser that does your same job that doesn't invest themselves. Yeah, I agree. Like just and how could you not? Like if you're an appraiser, like valuing these buildings, seeing what they can do. I guess maybe it's the new generation of it now because they actually don't look like they're that profitable anymore. Like. <laughs> Ontario real estate's so inflated, uh, you know, it is what it is, but um, it, you have an interesting uh, advantage though, for sure. What else can we, 
any other teachable stuff? Like, I mean, I, what you said about the cap rates, I agree with that. I think a lot of people who are in our space intuitively knew that anyway. Like, you know, like the, it's, it's almost more of a price per unit. Like there was a price per unit in certain areas where there was X, X potential to add value. So right. if there's lots of, then people were paying absurd price per units for stuff that needed work. So for me, like yeah. I kind of look at price per unit. If I'm looking at a deal that I want to purchase on the MLS or private, the first question I ask is what's the price per unit that they're asking before I spend like 10 minutes yeah. trying to do all the That's the expenses. easiest thing because I've heard, you know, talking to, to Jake, he'll he'll just say some appraisers, it, it doesn't matter. Like there's, there's a certain price per unit that they're not going to go over. Like, yes, it's about the cap rate up to this price per unit. And then, you know, we're not going, we're not going right. higher than that. So the, because on the commercial side, if it's an income generating asset, the property is appraised with the primary valuation method using the income approach. And then the secondary valuation method is a sale comparison approach. So when we do the comparison, we're looking at it from an NOI per unit for yeah. every comp. And if the comparable mm -hmm. is, let's say in Toronto, so we're appraising something in Hamilton and we're using a comp from Toronto or like the GTA and the property in Hamilton is at a greater price per unit than the one we're at Toronto at the same after the adjustment, then something is not correct because the data has to be correlated. And this is ensuring that the property is like comparable from a, okay. a class D multifamily building and based on the quality of the building. So the price per unit is just to make sure that data is not skewed from the cap mm -hmm. rate side and making sure that the appraisers are kind of in line with where the market should be from a price per unit. But if the quality of the units is superior, so a property that is is leased with plus utilities, so tenants are paying for all utilities, that's a low risk to mm -hmm. the landlord. So cap rates also um, determine the risk factor associated with the property. It's the same yeah. thing buying a stock. Like the higher the rewards, yeah. um, the higher the risk. Right. Same thing with, that's what people go to as ter secondary tertiary market is a slightly higher cap rate, but people invest in- But Toronto. a little bit more risk, yeah. perceived risk. I, you know, I, I guess in, in a sense, a smaller market's more, more volatile to industry changes. Sure. Like if one employer moves out, that has an effect on that market. Whereas if one employer moves out of Toronto, it's not felt. Yeah, because generally nobody invests in Toronto that I know of for cash flow. They just buy yeah. based on potential, and uh, it's strictly based on location and where where population is. Wild, and, and you know, there's a place for that. Like there is. I just feel like a lot of people who do it probably shouldn't. <laughs> there's a certain type of people that should do it. Uh, yeah, but I think a lot that probably shouldn't do. I think I would. I. I don't think I would put my park my money in Toronto yet, but let's say in ten years, fifteen years down the road. Yeah, if it represents this amount of this portfolio, <laughs> then it's that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's like more yeah. of like pocket money or pocket change that you're willing to park in just for yeah. the future generation. And to you own know something. that they're likely it's going up yeah. in a big way, right? For sure. So I live in downtown Toronto right now, and I choose to rent. Um, I'm living with a roommate. My rent is about sixteen hundred bucks a month. It's awesome. All my friends and family, or even friends, they're like, "How could you?" Like you have all these investments, but you're still choosing to rent. I'm like, well, the opportunity cost for yeah. me to buy that condo, I could get a greater return that will offset yeah. my rent. That's what I that did building. for like my whole twenties, man. Like <laughs> it was just easier to get mortgages. There was so yeah. many reasons to do it. And I didn't like the price points in Burlington. So I just like, ah, oh, whatever. Yeah. Just live with family basically. And yeah, that allowed me to get lots of mortgages. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's about taking your advantages. I think that's wise. Yeah. And that's the other thing with the generation. So I'm in my you know, mid to late twenties 
And you probably see online where a lot of new, new, news reports says that in order to buy a property in the greater Toronto area, you need like a $200,000 salary, like one fifty minimum. And people are buying into that because that's what the paper says and that's what they're going to choose to believe in. But if you really pay the time, take the time to put yourself into a lot of these real estate meetups or just education, your the rental income can mm-hmm. offset a lot of the what yeah. you can qualify for right so for me i so when i started my um career like i was only making around fifty thousand dollars because i'm commission-based too so banks don't really take in your commission for the first two years yeah so for me i still was able to get i think 1.5 or 2 million dollars in mortgages with a because lenders. it's commercial right i uh, know a lot of residential so it was one of the a lenders oh, okay they, because of what it could generate so in Sudbury, I was being able to get like one of my mortgages was like fifteen hundred bucks a month, and my rental income was like forty seven hundred dollars a month. The Sudbury effect, right there. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to scale a lot. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do that maybe slightly in Windsor, but not like in London, Hamilton, because the income to debt ratio would not have made sense. Yeah. Well, that's a great point you're making there, right? If you go to a market like Sudbury, yeah, if the rents justify it, the banks are all of a sudden willing to to lend. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, and obviously you're so set up here in Ontario, so I, I get you know why it might persuade you to say one thing over another here, but uh, what are your thoughts on U.S. or going to a different market? I think in the U.S., depending on where you are, I think it's great, but depending on where you're going to be investing in the States, you might as well just invest in Saskatchewan or you could do that, Manitoba yeah. or even Alberta. Yeah. Um, because Alberta is still landlord friendly and some of the prairies are still landlord friendly that mm-hmm. it's much easier qualifying for those mortgages from yeah, what I understand. the Canadian banks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think in the U.S., it really comes down to where you're located specifically. I know you're in Florida. For me, with my limited knowledge and my exposure with trying to start investing in the U.S., I think you're... <clears throat> my mind is so focused on the team that I already have yeah, <clears throat> that I'm not willing to just to a shift new market, my yeah. energy. That's how I was with London. I did not want to, <laughs> did not want to leave, like I go start from scratch. It just seems daunting. Once you've put all that work in to a market, it's just like, oh, do I really want to do that all over again? Because you can look at a deal. I'm yeah. sure right now, like let's say you find a deal in London. All you got to, all you need is your phone and you have your network in yeah. London to do the rest for you. Yeah, right. You got people so, who can help. Yeah. So for me, it's more of like, do I really want to put the time and energy? But I think once it come, it'll, it'll come to a point where it'll make sense. But yeah. for me, I did look into a vacation home in Orlando. Uh, I went on a radio show in, in Orlando last April, and the agent that I met, he mm-hmm. kind of gave me an idea on vacation homes around Disney, and it was pretty cool, like a million dollars for an eight bedroom house within uh, a gated community. So mm-hmm. you have they'll kind of take care of everything. I think it was a fifteen percent management fee. But um, you basically get a pool, a bedroom, Disney, like branded in terms of the room. Yeah. And it was a pretty cool lifestyle. I can could, I could imagine myself or, you know, the future that I would want to have to be able to come down. But sure. um, I do think for me, the biggest thing with Florida is just the weather. I'm sure you've already experienced that. But it's awesome weather. I don't know. It's it's great weather but there's also like the hurricanes and the tropical yeah. season that's the biggest thing i'm worried about with i was in the eye I, so our properties my properties were in the eye of the <laughs> hurricane <Really? laughs> yeah like the worst <laughs> hurricane that cape coral's seen and uh they survived so yeah uh, but, but i mean lots didn't right but mine being new construction the way they're built they just right. like they no not not even any cracked glass on mine sure. whereas other people had you know they had to rip out all their walls but i get yeah. i guess that's the same thing saying like it can like an earthquake can happen in 
the yeah. GTA and anything you have. Can, sure. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, like building standards in Florida have been adjusted to adjust for that. Right. right. So if you're getting into older product, yeah, you could, you get hammered and I wouldn't even want to like the realtor I've been working with, he's saying, yeah, we can pick up some deals. I'm like, yeah, but what if another <laughs> hurricane hits? Like, I don't want to own that. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I, technically you could pay the insurance, but right. you know, part of the issue is that insurance companies are going bankrupt because of the number of claims. Uh, right. Similar to what happened in Alberta many years back with the uh, the floods they had there. Um, so I'm actually curious how yeah. underwriting insurance underwriting um, works in those kind of markets because they probably have to invest that money into like high rate of return to be I able guess, to. I yeah. guess, yeah. I'm curious what they invested in, but it's not cheap. Like insurance policy on the the larger one I'm selling right now, seven thousand a year. Just a single family? Just, yeah. And that's not even including hurricane insurance, like flood insurance. It's not, they don't call it hurricane. It's flood and then you can get other stuff. Um, but uh, the flood insurance, if I wanted it, on that one, it probably wouldn't be that bad because the way it's built. But other people are paying like nine, 10 grand a year for flood insurance. So do you feel like that's why properties are slightly more cheaper due to the cost of... Some of that stuff, yeah, for sure. But I could hang on to these without flood insurance because they're literally built right out of the floodplain. Right. Um, like if they didn't flood on this hurricane, I'm not interesting yeah so it's all about the how right yeah. but i don't even think it's just that market like i think florida's good for like a flipping market an airbnb market uh less good for a long-term hold market uh unless you're gonna yeah airbnb it but i like better contingency plans than that so um yeah i think there's a lot of other states though that work well too i'm kind of just exploring some options now yeah i know there's scottsdale um arizona a lot of people are going down there uh, for me, I think, I'm not sure if you were a fan of Scottsdale, Arizona. Well, I, I have never been to Arizona myself, but I do know people who invest there and, uh, Arizona just seems awesome. Yeah. I'd love to go one day. And, but every, um, every state that I've visited, so I went to California, San Diego specifically, I've always took the time to go visit like condominiums or any properties. Mm -hmm. And I was in just south of Los Angeles, uh, Newport, Newport beach. I've been but, there. Man, like homes were transacting at just a single family home, like three point five million to four million dollars. It's and wild, huh? That's what it was. And people are willing to pay. So when I look at Toronto, it's still cheap relatively. Think, there you don't think it's overpriced. It's just part, yeah, it's just what you have to pay to have a normal. Well, Toronto's still limit. cheap compared to New York. Sure. It's there's there are always gonna be I shouldn't say always, but there will most likely continue to be other other cities. Uh, that are much more expensive uh, per square foot, et cetera. Yeah. However, I think that where Toronto fails uh, is where when you compare income to housing prices. Great. I've seen that somewhere and I don't think it's, I think it's among one of the most expensive places in the world relative to income. And I think the new generation coming out of school, college, like in the mid 20s, early 30s, they're still, they're still accustomed to the idea of buying your primary home as your first piece of quote unquote investment because mm -hmm. everyone in their circle of friends and family are doing it and they feel like that's what they have to do to be a part of the normal society yeah and, fitting in and keeping for, up with the joneses yeah right <laughs> so for me it's like if you're married and you only have yourself um and your partner and your goal is to travel like for me like once i get married i, I do want to spend the first couple of years traveling I don't really need to be paying a four or five thousand dollar mortgage when i'm not no. going to really be spending the full year there. i thought very similarly yeah right so for me, I'm trying to uh, using my social media to kind of educate people and change that mentality because it's a lot of people want to buy that that first home because they want to start a family and spend more time with their kids. But a lot of the people that I've been meeting in their 
early 40s they're actually getting into real estate investing because they don't have enough time to spend with their kids mm-hmm. and they don't want to take up take up a new promotion because getting a new job just means more time more work and more work right so i think sooner or later a lot of people will just have to start renting but just because you rent doesn't mean you can't buy some assets yeah i mean I'm, I'm big on that like i don't need to um I don't need to invest here in Ontario just because I live here. You know, right. e- even that, you know, angle, like you could uh, you could own absolutely nothing here and invest somewhere else. Or you could not own your home here and have all your investments here, Agreed. Uh, which I've done sort of, you know, basically both those models. And uh, it's really just about making sense. For me, things needed to make sense. Like if I couldn't make sense of the plan, I wouldn't do it. I could never make sense of just working a job because right. to me that never made sense. Like my parents would say, oh, go, you know, go to school, get a good education go get a good job. What's a good job? Mm-hmm. One that makes me happy? Nah, don't be silly. <laughs> One yeah. that'll get you a good pension, a good retirement. Um, it, it just, you know, and I think a lot of kids kind of feel that way coming out of high school. Like, right. oh, I don't know what I want to do. I'm sure you, you know, you felt that way. And yeah, like I graduated and I got my first paycheck and I was like, what am I going to really do with this? Like, yeah, didn't I know what to do. another two weeks to get my next check. Um, oh, I know. I felt so <laughs> lost with all that. Like when I was teaching at Western, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I graduated from business school, didn't know what I wanted to do. All Everyone I was graduating with was just getting like consulting jobs, accounting jobs, uh, you know, iBanking jobs. Right. Um, I wasn't into any of that stuff and, and, it, and I couldn't make sense of it. So so I went and taught because, you know, that was fun. It was like extending university by two years. Right. And um, but, you know, it, uh, fortunately, I am at my wife, uh, now wife and you know her mom was into real estate investing and it was just like imagine just having one connection that we have at a meetup or something like just one person you know that's doing it i knew nobody that was doing it for sure and then you know it's easy to take it for granted now i'll go out to the meetup next week and there might be what 80 people there that are all investing in real estate uh that that's what really made all the difference but it helped me to see long-winded story helped me to see that there actually is an angle there is a way that you can do your day-to-day and have things actually make sense right and I think some people just think, ah, well, you, you know, it just won't make sense. You just got to keep your head down, work hard, and, you know, things will happen. And I think it really comes down to when that individual or even myself, like for me, when it came down to what is my value on time? Mm-hmm. Because our parent generation or immigrants coming in, it's not about time. It's more about supporting the kids. But then for us coming up, like we had the flexibility where we can determine what the value of our own time is. And it's, mm. it's a very subjective figure depending on who that person is but for me i feel like a career where you can choose your own time Mm -hmm. they'll be able to bring in revenue and build a team out of it and not all careers you can do that someone you gotta you have to be behind the computer but for me like the firm that i'm working for they spent a lot of time and investment into technology where like it doesn't really require me to be at the desk so right now before i came i just um, took an hour and just made sure that everyone knew what they had to do and, and I'm here but at least the revenue is still being generated mm-hmm. and meeting that timeline for that client so yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to streamline it I think being mm-hmm. a doctor is very difficult you can't really streamline yeah if that. you're in those professions <laughs> then then you're you know you're active brings you in quite a bit of money and yeah. you just got to use uh, you pretty much got to work it uh, really well build up that nest egg and then eventually you replace that that income yeah. Um, and it's everyone's decision, right? Like how many people do you know that have quit a, a job they went and got a lot of education for? Yeah, it is. And they just, and they just quit it because their real estate makes them so much money. <laughs> so my roommate is an actual, he's a doctor and he'll be on call for like 24, 48 hours. So it's funny because like he'll leave by the time I wake up 
and then he'll mm-hmm. be in bed because yes and he can't really go out or yeah. drink or anything because he has to be ready for the next day and be focused where i was like i'll come home and when i come home he's already in bed and i told him like i could never do this lifestyle if i had to mm-hmm. um and don't get me wrong giving back i mean your obviously public health is an amazing thing like we need doctors but for me as an individual i think i'm so used to yeah. living on my own terms that i can't restrict the day-to-day life just to just for my career is this a generational <laughs> thing though like is this like a, a, a common sentiment now i don't even know yeah like do are more people like that like i feel like the the newer generations like i think they, social media plays a big role they, yeah they they want to i think are people becoming more entrepreneurial at least to a little bit of a degree like they think oh i could become the next uh, youtube sensation or something like that i think social media for sure because then when i was in high school i'm sure even when you were in high school like facebook just came um out when i was in grade eight grade nine but instagram when i went to university and i'm sure you were already like past the yeah. education standpoint so for me like i don't have a lot of networks with the high school and elementary school friends that i have because we just didn't have a platform like msn was what we used back in the day but um, god knows like where that Do you is remember right icq now. no that, that was <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea what that dating is dating myself here yeah that was like before <laughs> msn was icq interesting yeah. yeah so a lot of those connections like we don't have where a lot of the upcoming generation they do and they're able to sustain that relationship and network through social media mm-hmm. and i feel like if they follow the right people um they have a, a they're way ahead of the game than what we are and what we were exposed to because for me i think once the pandemic hit everyone became an investor on social media like every week and every month there was a lot of people and yeah. that's where i got exposed to it because i was like shoot there's so many investors so and- really it was it was the lockdowns that's when you started looking or you were in 2019 2019 were, october yeah. but then yeah. i went to a keyspire event in february and um that's where darren burroughs was speaking and that's where i met him for the first time i know he was a, he was a guest with you a couple of weeks ago and um i was like shoot like there's so much way there's so many ways to invest in real estate i didn't really know what the bird was i thought we just buy and hold uh and i started just following the right people and at that time mm-hmm. i didn't really know who the right people were i was probably at that event were you at the summit or was it uh no it was just like the three-day oh, work, the, the three-day the workshop. workshop yeah yeah okay right um and then there was a lot of online free like free online webinars yeah and at the end of the day i just started printing offers even though i had no money in my bank account i'm like i'm just gonna figure a way and <laughs> eventually yeah. i figured out how to roll the money multiple times and getting a lot of seller financing so half my portfolio was vendor take back mortgages in second position so i i really ever had to put 20 or 25 percent down i am doing one of those right now vtb in second position with the seller yeah yeah that's the way that's a good way of doing it you don't really have to get it and i thought and in the beginning when i was offering those vtbs like i didn't really know first position second position because i didn't know how the underwriting and lending works but i just assumed well the underwriting they're not gonna like it if you're if you're closing privately then then it can work which i mean this is where i'm at with all this like i i just rather deal with private money and this is what i like about the states is because there's just like if if we have a lot of private lenders here they have like times 10. it's just like insane now granted there's a lot of there's a variance in professionalism which i've noticed uh it is kind of the wild west and i don't like some of the way that they talk to me (laughs) not desperate i will find an alternative don't talk to me like that but uh Anyways, yeah, so it, it's an interesting um, landscape. But, you know, my, my my thought with that is you can do that creative financing stuff. Right. Like, you know, there's just way more opportunity when you deal private, which obviously you've seen with your creative offers. Yeah. So a lot of those yeah. work with credit unions. Um, the credit unions would allow yeah, for it? So Desjardins, okay. 
they're pretty big in Ontario. But they want your DCR to work with the with the second. Yes. So as long, well, Sudbury it would work, right? Yeah, of course. So yeah, because your cash duplex. Yeah. Where I only put thirty four thousand yeah. down, and um, on the commercial side, so they go up to like twelve point seven. I don't know why, why I've been told twelve point seven percent is the maximum first position, sorry, second position mortgage you can get okay. on BTB, and that's what I. That's very random. That must be yeah. something to do with your specific deal. So on the eleven, yeah, I know it was like on a previous deal. So when I got the eleven unit on my offer, it was like twelve point seven percent of the mortgage, uh, for, of the purchase price will be in second position mortgage. What? And oh, my wow. agent was like, "Why twelve point seven? Why don't you just go to 13 I'm like. I'm I'm not gonna lose a deal just over a 0.03 with the lender. Yeah, I just capped it at 12.7. Nice. Well, you want that zero down if you can get it. <laughs> Maybe cash back. Uh, that'd be cool. Yeah, I don't that, know how with, that works because some yeah. lawyers said that it's very difficult to have that on the actual purchase agreement of purchase and sale because lenders don't like that too. But I'm not sure. So Carmen did it in the U.S. on okay. her on her Naples place, and she uh, <laughs> I, I don't think she'd mind me sharing this. So anyway, she bought the place for like six seven hundred, I think. And then, you know, it, was, it wasn't a firm offer. So she um, ended up doing her due diligence. And in the offer, she had already written in a dollar amount VTB. Like the seller agrees to a, this dollar amount VTB. And that would have been like, a, she would have been in for basically nothing or like, I don't know, 20 grand or whatever. I don't know exactly how all the numbers worked, but I know she said she got like something like $40,000 back after she renegotiated the price after she did her due diligence so she oh i found this this and this we're gonna need to get it at this price they agreed to that price but they never adjusted the vtb so she got cash back on closing that is crazy (laughs) could that work here i don't know i think so 100 percent. yeah so you just write it in as a dollar rather than a percentage we tried i was thinking about this as we were writing this on this resort we just bought and uh the own you know the seller literally was wise to it and said no i want uh a cap but i think we wrote it in a way that he had a chance to uh take it to his lawyer uh so you know once you allow anything to go to a lawyer no offense to lawyers i know there's a reason for you um it's just uh you know lawyers tend to convince people not to do things (laughs) yeah and i think the one thing i learned in the beginning is never email your lawyer if you have a thing that could be a red flag like always just pick up the phone and do everything oh especially if they're uh representing the lender yeah Yeah. right so um so for me i always pick up the call because there's questions that I, I, just, I just don't know if they're mm-hmm. if they follow within the guidelines or not. So instead of and they're not going to respond to you on an email because it's just going to be documented. Mm-hmm. So you rather just pick up the phone and figure out the information. Valid out. point. I mean, technically, if the lawyer hears it, they're supposed to tell the lender as well. But uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more on that. Um, not saying I know of anybody who's done that. But uh, okay, yeah, this is a uh, cool discussion. I mean, we got into a lot of nuts and bolts, a lot of process with the appraisers, uh, appraisals. Uh, I'll make an observation about you and what I think has worked for you. And I think it's reps. I think right. it's a number of reps. I think you probably analyze a lot of deals. I think that you've made a lot of calls and made a lot of offers. Yeah. And if you make enough offers, eventually somebody says yes. Yeah. To what your terms are, to what you want to get. For me, yeah, I just put an offer out there if it makes sense to me. If I don't get it, I just don't get it. Like somebody listening to this with absolutely no money could start doing the research, find a place that works, go make an offer, uh, put the deposit on a credit card. And I am not giving advice. This is not advice. (laughs) But negotiate a full 100% uh, VTB or even a cash back. That deal is out there. Yeah. But it takes educated eyes to see it. And sometimes you just need to get the property under contract just to get that initial due diligence yeah. with that seller because a lot of sellers they're very hard to deal with until until you get you're the in due diligence here's the reason for that my estimation right 
they're invested in you once once they allow the property to sit off market or under under your contract for 30 days they're now invested in you buying that deal yeah like they've invested time into you so they're more likely to negotiate with you after 30 days than they are at the onset before you have anything in paper for sure that's my thought and so the, even the 11 unit um was on the market for 1.4 and mm -hmm. i wanted at 1.1 but um they weren't willing to go that low so I realized they had a triplex on the market as well for 389 and I walked in and it said it was fully occupied but with two vacant units. Mm -hmm. So I put an offer for 300,000 on the triplex and then put an offer on the 11 units and on the 11 units I said this offer is conditional upon the triplex being accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Take right. it or leave it. Yeah. <laughs> Take it all. And they accepted the triplex for 300,000 and mm -hmm. I got the 11, the 11 units for 1.3 mm -hmm. and the triplex was appraised three months later with only 40,000 renovations for 650,000. Wow. So I cashed out 274 and I bought the 11 units with only $160,000 down. So did the seller just grossly undervalue the property or you just were a convenient option? So they, number one, the property was listed under commercial other, not commercial multifamily. So it didn't really get the demand they wanted. Uh, number two, the, it, the income and expenses were all over the place. Mm -hmm. So even me, when I looked at it, like the data was just off that I mm -hmm. just started asking a lot of questions and I knew the information wasn't correct. So for me, I just kind of used that mm -hmm. to my advantage. And it came to a point where they just wanted to sell it been on the market for four months. And yeah, so like I literally bought 11 units, but only a $60,000 down payment because all I did was bought the triplex for 20% down. Mm -hmm. which is 60,000 and pulled 274,000, put 160 and then I bought a fourplex. I literally closed on the 11 units on a Friday and I bought another fourplex um, with another BTB on a Monday. Yeah. So how much money were you in out of, across all of those ballpark, like out of out of your pocket? Zero. Zero. So you just worked it out with the creative financing? Yeah, because like for me to buy the um, the the duplex. So even a couple of months ago before that, I don't know, around the same time, I, October 2021, I bought mm -hmm. a vacant turnkey fiveplex in Sudbury off market and for 450000 I negotiated uh, a 11% VTB. So I only had to put 14% down. And once the first rate hike went up, uh, it got appraised in December, so two months later, for seven fifteen. And once the first rate hike up, first rate hike went up, I was like, you know what? I wasn't, for me, it's not about the number of units. It's more about the quality of the units and the quality of the building. Mm -hmm. And it was the worst one I had. So I sold it off market for 790. Mm -hmm. So I cashed out just around 300 grand, probably a bit more before taxes. And so for me, it was keeping a balance between cash. And even on my social media, like I just have something that says, um, stay liquid and improvise. Mm -hmm. Because the more liquid you are, and the more cash you can show to the bank, you don't really yeah. need to use that cash to buy the deal. Yeah, just have it. Yeah, that was always an asset to me. I, and right. I, to this day, like I always like to have extra cash, even though I'm paying for private money, like I'll, I'll still have cash yeah. just because I know it's essential. For sure. So yeah. that's why I tell a lot of people like money, a lot of people look at money as an optical. For me, it's more of an opportunity where if, you, if a deal makes sense and there's an opportunity there, don't let an item like money, even though it seemed like the big obstacle that you have to overcome to be something that you're not willing to pursue just get that opportunity under contract and for me i try going in without no jv partner so far it has worked mm -hmm. but if you do need to bring a partner and that's the route you have to go like you can always show the potential in a deal and you can always raise mm -hmm. capital yeah for sure um any closing thoughts that we're coming up on the hour mark here um what, you know something you want to share words of wisdom i mean you just gave a bunch so <laughs> no pressure 
Uh, I think with, in terms of growing your real estate, trying to find what your purpose in terms of why you're buying real estate. Mm-hmm. Some people just buy for the sake of just getting their first property, but yeah. there's no exit strategy. Yeah. And really talk with an appraiser. If you're in the commercial standpoint, have a commercial appraiser on your power team because everyone has a mortgage agent and a real estate agent. But if you have an actual commercial appraiser where you can pick up the phone yeah. and be like, hey, like, what was the last thing you've appraised in a city? Like, what cap rate did you use? Yeah. And I've done that to a lot of my clients. I'm like, hey, I just appraised one for at a sick cap and this was the NOI. I'm not going to share the building. Yeah, yeah. I'll share the number of units. But um, I think with the appraisal side of the business, with the Appraisal Institute of Canada, we can share what properties we're appraising. I'm, I still don't know why. Like real estate agents, mortgage agents, you can publicize that data in terms of the property you funded on or the yeah. property you transacted on. But the appraisal side, we can't really share that. So for me, I'm more than happy to share that. So find an appraiser that you could use. It can be on the residential side as well. But residential side is not a relationship-based industry. No. A commercial side, if you're on an institutional form, is more from a one-on-one relationship standpoint. Yeah. So I think spend the time and your energy on finding a good appraiser that you can have yeah. on your power team. Yeah, that's that's valuable information. And, you know, same idea with like a commercial realtor, like yeah. a really good commercial realtor is going to know those appraisers and, you know, can connect you. And then, of course, if you, like you deal, where's your locations? Like, are you Ontario exclusively? No. So I've actually done, I just did one last, two in uh, British Columbia last month. I did Wild. two in Alberta and I just did uh, one in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So you're across Canada. You can so we and, do across Canada, New Brunswick. I just did one last week in Montreal. Um, now it's it's for us that's our competitive advantage that if you're dealing with me like it doesn't matter where you are in canada we can you can deal with that so we do it with a lot of like banks within the u.s as well so a lot of the big institutionalized product uh, assets like retail mixed use industrial a lot of the major banks in the u.s are lending on it not canadian banks Hmm. so our u.s guys they would send us the um the information hey like these are our clients could you take it on and then we'll just pay a referral fee or whatever um, discussion that we've been able to do with them. Nice. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, how do people follow you or reach you? Instagram is probably the best way. Um, Myron C M Y U R E N C. And through that, there's a link where you can book a console call for commercial appraisals. Um, a lot of people book that for be, a, um, for in a coaching call. And I'm like, Hey, like I can't be a coach <laughs> telling you it's a good deal <laughs> and yeah. giving you my expert advice. Cause it's more of a conflict of interest. So strictly for that and to follow my journey, I share a lot about my own uh, real estate journey because I can talk about the valuations on mine because it's my own properties, yeah. not the clients. So I kind of run, the, run down the numbers with those and kind of share those details. Cool. All right, Myron, thanks for doing this. I uh, really appreciate it. It was great to yeah, hear the long form of your experience. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Well, until next time. There are a lot of people out there talking about the infinite banking strategy and whether or not it makes sense for them. To find out what it's all about and if it's a fit for you, visit controlandcompound.com forward slash Andrew Hines, where my audience can gain exclusive access to books, podcasts, and webinars tailor-made for real estate investors.